I've been telling people that WebAssembly is the next big thing. 2030? Can we put it on the calendar? <laughs> Let's do it. By that point, WebAssembly will be the next big thing, damn it. I've been saying that for five years. <laughs> and Linux on the desktop, right? Uh, no, that's just for me. Goodness, Gina. Paul? Gina, we have some disclosures with this guest. I'm so excited about this guest. You're very very excited. excited. You love this platform. You love this platform. I refuse to have any, I I remain truly neutral on all content platforms. I feel that that is my responsibility as like the Switzerland of content. But you are a fan. What's it called? What's your favorite CMS, Gina? I love WordPress. I do. I'm going to say it. I I feel that maybe as a professional, I should also try to be neutral, but I'm just going to say it. I've been publishing with and building on WordPress for a decade, and I'm a big fan. And so I'm very excited about the guests that we have on today. Wait, before we have this guest on, let's just fully disclose. We are a WordPress VIP partner. We have taken money from WordPress for, for work in the past. So just everything you hear is just pure marketing. Just don't <laughs> believe a word. Just like the, as opposed to this podcast normally, when we're marketing our firm <laughs> nonstop. So, you know, just, but we trust you, the listener, to understand what's going on here, which is that we're talking to someone who was the founder and the builder of one of the largest and most significant content production platforms in the history of humankind, not just the web. Matt Mullenweg, welcome to the Postlight Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And neutrality is way overrated. <laughs> <laughs> That just means you haven't figured things out. I mean, okay. All right, let's go there. I mean, you know, I put the words in the box, and the box is the database, and then I get the words out. And now, increasingly, that's an API. Why do I need all this content management in the middle? What's what's that? Management. Who likes management? (laughs) Before I provoke you, WordPress is big, and there's a lot of different ways to measure big. Sometimes I see percentages of all the the web pages in the world and and things like that. Give us a sense about the organization and the scale, and also it'd be very helpful to understand. There, are, you know, I I think about WordPress, and I think that I think of that admin screen in my mind, but I know there's a lot more going on. So, how big is this thing, and what are the things that that WordPress does as an organization? Yeah, WordPress is an open source project I co-founded with Mike Little uh, 17 years ago in 2003. It encompasses a really large community that kind of hangs out on WordPress.org, develops it. You know, any given release has five or 600 contributors, uh, only which 10% work directly with me in a commercial fashion. So 90% really wide. There's thousands of volunteers, translators, and a huge economy built around it. I would estimate that the WordPress economy is about 10 billion a year or above. WordPress now powers, I think the stat we use is either built with or W3 text, but it's like 38 or 39% of the top 10 million sites. That is wild. That is a wild stat. I mean, that's that's a lot of words. It's a a lot of words being pressed. Yeah, a lot of words (laughs) being pressed. So I I see that as a trailing metric. Now it's not a goal. Like I would love to get that to 80, 85%, but that's not a goal. It's that is a measure of how well we're serving our users, how well the community is moving along with what the state of the art in content management, e-commerce, everything is, is happening and, and adapting and using. So WordPress is kind of this free core that we, we build. 
There's also over 55,000 plugins and themes that can transform it into pretty much anything. Some of those are very popular, like maybe Yoast SEO is rightly regarded as like the best SEO software. WooCommerce, which is one of our products, is an e-commerce built on top of WordPress. That's now over $20 billion a year of goods being sold through it, and it's growing like a weed. A few years after starting WordPress, I started a company called Automatic, A-U-T-O-M-A-T-T-I-C. So typical egotistical founder, I put my name in it. And the idea was to create basically a company that worked in concert with the open source. So where those kind of for-profit and non-profit would both complement each other and make both bigger than either would be on its own. And so fast forward 15 years, Automatic is 1,300 people. We've been fully distributed from day one. So even pre-COVID, we have people in 77 countries, pretty much every U.S. state. And we make commercial add-ons. So WordPress.com, which is like a hosting service for WordPress. WooCommerce, which is the e-commerce plugin. Uh, we bought Tumblr last year, so we're running Tumblr now, and we're going to switch that to WordPress. And uh, some other things that are, are for fun, like Simple Note and lots of plugins. Just a little little side um, project that turned into a little company. <laughs> Your average human being hears WordPress, and they don't realize that it is actually kind of quietly one of the very large platforms of the web. Right, like I think you know, people think Google, you know, Amazon, whatever, because and they they get all the oxygen, and then you have this sort of iceberg floating along, which is WordPress. It's changed the the nature of the web, and and actually, what to me is fascinating about it is that so much of what's happening in our world is about turning the web into a software delivery platform, just app, 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 and WordPress is is that core of the web that is about we're going to make pages, they're going to be searchable, they're going to be optimized, and and then you build on top of that. We can have commerce and. Catalogs and things like that on top of it. Do you feel that tension? Do you feel the tension to kind of turn WordPress into an app generation platform, or is it is its heart going to always remain in the page with words on it? I think what's beautiful is, regardless of whatever tension I personally feel or not, you know, because it's really <laughs> run by the community, it, it goes. So I would say people have been using WordPress as an app platform for since 2012, 2013. And it was kind of the third wave where at first WordPress was really just about blogging. And then it became about sort of managing your entire website. So versus like something you plug into another website. And then people started using it as an app platform. Why do they do this? I think it's it can be well suited for, you joked about putting things in a database and taking them out. Right. If, if that ratio is kind of one-to-one, -one, like maybe like a video game or a chat service, the data architecture and structure of WordPress is not well suited to that. So you probably want something else. But if it's something that's like a write a lot, read a lot more access pattern, WordPress is fantastic for that. So it can support literally millions of authors publishing things millions of times per day that get read billions of times per day. So that sort of model is really good for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I mean, one of the things that, that we do a lot at PostSite is that we're building platforms that have a lot of different components and content being one of them. And a big thing for me with WordPress was when the REST API, you know, became stable. And we, we use WordPress often in a headless sense as a, one component of a bigger platform. And that that really opens up a lot of different possibilities because, you know, you get the, those advantages of all the things that, you know, what is it, 14 years or many years of WordPress development and user permissions and basic, you know, author and great authoring experience, et cetera. But you can still surface that that content really wherever you want it to be. It doesn't have to be a web page, right? It can be an Alexa skill or an iPhone, you know, phone app or whatever. You know, I, I like I said, I, I'm, the Switz I'm Switzerland when it comes to CMSs. I'm very neutral. But the reality is when people are like, what should I use? And they make some very, they know I love technology and I like to use wonderful things. <laughs> and they make their very strong arguments because people like to argue for new 
exciting things that are completely unproven. And I'm like, yeah, no, you're going to use WordPress. You're, that's what you're going to do because that's going to work and you're not going to get confused and spend all your money on something that won't work and will be confusing. And so it's just, it's infrastructure and it really does lock in as you're building these things. I think what's funny with the app-based world that we're in now, especially because a firm like our services firm, we get asked to build web apps probably more than we get asked to build sites. But there's always, a, you know, 20, 30% that is about managing the content. It just still has to happen. People are still creating things with words that have to go online. And, and yeah, I mean, at, at that point, you're going to have WordPress as REST or WordPress with GraphQL in front of it. And it's, it's you're going you're gonna to have to make a strong argument otherwise. I was going to ask that. I know that, you know, the, the open source community, it's so, it's, it's incredible that you have 90% contributor, volunteer contributors, 10% from Automatic. Is that what you, what you mentioned earlier, which is really amazing because the community really is taking the platform and driving it forward. I'm curious, like, what, are, what have been the features that have come out of, you know, the open source project that you are most excited about or inspired by? Yeah, it's it's every feature. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know if I can. Um, I missed something very important earlier, which is like WordPress is actually not the most important thing in the world to me. Open sources. So I see a future of humanity where open source is like as we globalize, it's key for like us being harmonious and not like descending into like a, a Malthusian trap or something like that. We, we really need, if you think of what open source is, it's essentially a hack to get competitors to work together and sort of create a shared commons of knowledge and functionality in the case of software that something getting bigger, it becomes better. Where with most proprietary solutions, when something gets bigger, it becomes worse or becomes less aligned with its users because the owners of WordPress are its users. And there's a bill of rights attached to it, which is the four freedoms of the GPL. It is much more like a, what's the word? Like a meta space country <laughs> than it is like even a single product. And I, a controversial opinion I have kind of going to what Paul said is that the sort of survival rate of proprietary software, like they're all evolutionary dead ends in the very long term. That might be 20, 30, 40 years, but it's all going to move to open source because that's where all the incentives are. And I think even a, a company like Microsoft being now one of the largest open contributors, source contributors in the world is astounding and something that I think most people wouldn't have predicted 10 or 20 years ago, but I believe oh, no, my was brains literally come out of my ears. When I look at Microsoft today, I have, <laughs> it's so wild to see where they are in terms of how they perceive and interact with the world compared to how they used to be. And they're doing a great job at it too. You know, they, they took some of that crazy intelligence they already had and they're pointing it at open source. And I think it is, it is multiplying and it's still, what's amazing is open source now runs so much and it's still, I would guess like less than 1% of IT spend goes towards creating open source. You know, a city like San Francisco, which has an annual city of seven, 800,000 people spends on software licensing, 50, 60, $70 million per year. Every year, where WordPress going from zero to probably 23% of the web was spent on entirely automatic $11 million of outside funding, sort of 2005 to 2014. Look, I'm the only person that posts late. Because I'm the CEO, I get to use Ubuntu 20 as my daily driver. Everybody <laughs> else has to use a Mac. And I think there's two things happening, right? And I, I see this with your product as well, or not your the community's product. That is a good distinction to make, uh, which is that... There has been a tipping point, and actually Microsoft and Microsoft's involvement is not just symbolic, but sort of contributes to that tipping point where 
the quality is really good. It's still hard to kind of, what's still hard sometimes are things like setup and installation and that part of the experience. Open source culture doesn't drive towards them often as, as much as a commercial driver does. But once you get on the other side of that, the experiences are almost indistinguishable from really good commercial software. And sometimes often they're just more options and, and more extensibility. And I mean, like, I don't notice I'm on Ubuntu anymore. I switch back mm. to the Mac and I'm like, yeah, okay, when I have to, which is to use Keynote. And so play that out a little bit, right? Like I, I'm, this is more of a comment than a question. So let me, let me turn it into a question. What about that part of it? What about installation? Like you spent an enormous amount of your life helping people get things on to run on servers. And now there's a lot of new, new ways to do that and a lot of cloud services. So fast forward a little bit. Where do you think that's going to go? You know, I think the biggest threat to open source is probably the, the native app ecosystems. So Android and the App Store, quite famously in the case of Apple, have completely proprietary ecosystems. You can't sideload things. You know. well, Android is open source itself, right? I mean, it's it's actually Google. Well, I, I like to zoom out and like think of technology as like broad multi-decade trends. And we had a really dark period for security and malware. You know, there was kind of that dark time when Windows was the dominant platform that people were interacting right. with technology. And much like if someone's site gets hacked today, including if they have an outdated WordPress and it gets hacked, like the ability to fix that up is very difficult. It's difficult even for professionals, right. much less right. if you're, you know, kind of a layperson. And so we, we really pivoted towards these very closed app ecosystems with lots of vetting and controls and the ability to revoke or remove apps from people's phones to, I think the motivation on the good side was for uh, security and probably why people traded off. On the dark side, maybe not even consciously, it was for control and monetization. You know, Apple's 30% tax being quite famous, which are now politically brilliantly lowering to 15% for under a million dollars so they can, <laughs> but like, that's all. What amazing timing for Apple to make that decision, right? What a surprise that right now today is when they're deciding to just cut that bad boy in half, let every, let a million flowers bloom. <laughs> and we ran into this very personally. In fact, one of the rare times Apple's ever apologized was a few months ago when they were essentially had communicated us after many, many appeals, we would have to add in-app purchases to the free open source WordPress app on the app store. And they had actually locked us out where we weren't even able to ship bug fixes unless we agreed to do this or leave the app store entirely. And you know, I've got a million people using that app, so I can't abandon them. So I just swallowed it and said, well, this was um, ultimately I like you agree to people's rules. You should play by them. So I was like, okay, we'll do this. And I just tried to give a heads up to the WordPress community. Like, Hey, there's going to be in-app purchases for wordpress.com in this app, which is meant to be a little more Swiss, Switzerland, we can add in-app purchases for other things. So if you're a different company, if you're GoDad, if you're Yoast, like this app's open source, let's add your stuff too. And we'll figure out how to resolve that. But they were literally forcing us to do this. And that ended up becoming a, the biggest tech story of that, <laughs> that kind of like couple of days in Apple uh, reverse position. But the fact that that had to happen in the first place shows how arbitrary and capricious doing this is. By the way, I have total sympathy for them. Like this was, who knows, I think they're managing 10,000 app updates a day or something, like some wild number. And they're, they're reviewing every single one of them. The App Store launched with 500 apps in like 2008, I think. Right, so they had a good plan and this was gonna, they were gonna keep this on lockdown. And I mean, you know, and they saw the iPhone and what was happening with it. But 
no one could have predicted. No one could have predicted the scale. And so, okay, here we are. And I just look at that 30% and I think like, what if this ecosystem had 25% of revenue kicked back to making new things instead of going to the giant monolithic company? That would be really good, right? Like just put capitalism aside for a minute. Like Apple can do what it wants to do because it's a giant org and it can use lawyers to figure it out. But like, boy, would that be good for our world right now of technology to let the people who are on there, you know, and Apple could still keep an under, utterly huge 5%. This is not a popular opinion, turns out. Doesn't turn out that people are excited by what I'm saying. I think it's tough. And we do give Apple a little bit harder time, rightly so. We hold them to a high standard because they are, I think, by market cap, the largest or second largest company in the world. They throw off more in profits than most countries have in revenue. And it can be somewhat arbitrary. Tom Conrad had a great tweet, which I'll now read because I thought it was brilliant. He said, scoop. Apple to charge 0% fee for the first $1 trillion in revenue from developers who choose to monetize through advertising or via the sale of real-world goods and services. <laughs> mm, sort of calling mm-hmm. out the Airbnbs and Facebooks of the world that are allowed to, Ubers, to monetize completely with paying 0% right. of this Apple tax. So an interesting question is like, why has WordPress as an open source community succeeded where most other open source things doing similar stuff, including starting at similar times, haven't gotten as big or or had the same incentives. And one thing I think is really key to us is we have a, a system called Fi for the Future. So this is a completely voluntary, uh, I guess you could call it a tax or you could call it a contribution, basically to avoid the tragedy of the commons. And we say, if you're making your living from WordPress or making a ton of money from WordPress or whatever it is, consider taking 5% of your revenue, whatever it is, and funnel it back into things that grow the community that aren't just for you, but like, sort of increase the pie. So for automatic now, we have 5% of our people, 1,300 people. Actually, there's a lot of people. We're below below that. I think we're at 4% or three and a half. But we have essentially 60 full-time people working full-time, contributing to the open source side of things, not working any commercial stuff for automatic. And other companies doing that, Yoast is actually a great example, I think is part of the reason WordPress has not collapsed under its own weight as we have uh, scaled. I mean, this, you know, you're one organization, one platform, but you saw this when the Heartbleed bug came out and suddenly the whole uh, secure sockets layer infrastructure of the internet, the security of it is is questioned. And as the as people look into the story, it just turns out it's these completely underfunded volunteers keeping that thing alive for probably a decade plus. And meanwhile, you know, Google, Facebook, everybody had built infrastructure on top of that. And kind of, you know, you, you don't think about the platforms that you build on a lot of times. You just kind of assume that they're there and they'll remain there and that every everybody's getting what they want out of the transaction. So by making that explicit, you're forcing people to care for the infrastructure, right? And so that's why I be, I think some sort of platform tax is, is could be a good thing. What would be even better, though, was if there was an active third-party community making iOS better, you know, and you could choose which iOS you want to use and, and things like that. And as amazing as iOS is, I consider it's like one of the best operating systems ever created and their vertical integration with processors, everything. It is really one of the best products humanity has ever produced. I wonder how much better it could be if they didn't have this sort of underdog mentality still. <laughs> like we have to fight every sure. single competitor. Like I feel like Apple still has that culture of being like, you know, weeks or months away from death and getting sort of saved by an investment by Microsoft. 
the thing that I want our listeners to think about as you're talking, right, is that like this is eminently possible and Microsoft is actually, and this is a strange thing to say for people of our cohort, Microsoft is leading the way. Like if you told me that chunks of Windows are going to get open sourced in the next five years or new, you know, parts of you know, server infrastructure stuff or, or larger parts of Azure, I'd be like, yeah, that probably makes sense. That seems to fit really well with their strategy. And they're giving a lot back into that ecosystem at the same time. And that is going to make them billions of dollars. Like they're going to do really well by that. And so I think it's, it's utterly possible, but boy, yeah, it, it is not Apple's way. I made a long bet in 2007, October 20th, 2007, Microsoft for open source Windows before 2017. And I, it was interesting how I was wrong in that bet, right? Because I think it was 2017, the year they bought GitHub, or like they had moved yeah. so, they'd swung so much toward open source, but it didn't matter. Windows didn't matter anymore. So it being open source isn't as important. But what they started to do and what they started to open up, including like supporting Linux on Azure, like other things, was far, ended up being far more significant. Are there any big orgs, because you're in a good position to know, any of the really good big orgs that are doing very well by open source, you know, aside from Microsoft, anybody where you're like, oh, you know, when we work with them, they've, they've got it. I think there's pockets in every single organization because mm-hmm. open source is just so clearly the future and the right moral thing to do. If you're an engineer and you understand the moral and political implications of software licenses and longevity of code and everything like that that I think it very naturally attracts engineers. And those engineers shift organizations from the inside where they have the power and ability to do so. And even where they don't, sometimes they ask forgiveness, not permission, which I love. <laughs> All engineers should I mean, do that more. Linux was that one machine in the closet that solved a problem. You know, now it runs all the cloud services. Sure. Which changed hugely. And you you would probably speak to this as well. It's like there was a time not that long ago when WordPress being open source was seen as a liability for large adoption. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they were like, oh, open source is insecure. Who developed like all these sorts of things. It turns out everything they said, the opposite was actually true. Open source is, I believe, far more secure than proprietary software. It has better development and support over time. You actually have far more flexibility of not being beholden to one company like an Oracle to update it 10 years from now. You could, as people do for PHP, employ people to port security patches to things that PHP doesn't even support anymore. So there's, um, there's a lot more autonomy, control, mastery, purpose, everything that you can get with open source. I mean, I think this is still, these are still fears. I mean, if you, Matt, if you were talking to an IT director or or a CTO who was saying to you, you know, I have engineers who really, you know, want to either open source work that we've made internally or want to use open source projects that already exist, but I am having a hard time selling this up the chain. I mean, why would we use code that's public to the world and everyone can see its flaws? Why do I have to worry about managing a community of contributors who don't even work for me and may not be interested in what my business is doing? Like, how, how would you advise that person? What, what are the kind of the talking points or the, or the things that you would arm a decision maker who's trying to, you know, make that shift in culture from fear and secrecy and, you know, keeping things proprietary to that open source model? It probably depends on the customer because I'd, I'd want to know, like, what was important to them. Are they concerned about cost, security? If I were just kind of like, if I were doing a talk on this, I'd probably try to make an analogy to the drug war. <laughs> and, you know, things we learned 50 years from now about like really morally odious stuff Nixon said, like the precept of of criminalizing some of the things like marijuana or psychedelics 
at some point, I think in the 90s, people just forgot that that was how it started. And they just kind of kept the, the criminalization going. And then like only more recently, we've like, oh, wow, this was a totally false premise. No one believes that anymore. I feel like the people who spread that flood about open source being less secure was like Microsoft. And so you can go into the history of the Halloween memo and other things where they said like, oh boy, did they? Yeah, yeah we oh, need to, right. we need to like create fear, uncertainty and doubt to like disrupt this thing because otherwise it will overtake us. And those people themselves, those organizations <laughs> like Microsoft, in fact, do adopt open source for more and more mission critical things. I think it'd be interesting to talk about the history of cryptography, where the security actually comes from all sides knowing exactly how it works and not from some sort of security by obscurity, which of course is a, is a flaw. Maybe dig into some of those assumptions like security by obscurity or other things and like kind of break them down. Like, is this reality? Is this true? And uh, that could be an interesting way. But of course it would depend completely on the client. Like some people don't actually feel that strongly about it. And I feel like sometimes they just ask that just to hear what you respond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, another thing that we that we hear from clients too, we say like, how about, you know, open sourcing this thing is like, well, but then people are going to come and then they're going to send pull requests and then we're going to have to answer their questions. And I'm like, yeah, in the best case scenario, right? Like (laughs) that would happen. (laughs) But it's a little bit like, but then I have to staff people to actually respond to those things. And this just feels like a big lift. Community is a lot of work and doesn't really scale. And we don't we don't want to deal with that. It's like, I, I you'll be lucky if people come and and you pull request number one. So if you get to that place, but this is also thing. this is like when people architect the platform for eight billion users an hour, and you're like, yeah, why don't we just build it and see, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, you know, God help you if the worst thing that happens to you is that your your platform gets a lot of support and engagement from the open source community. Like that, it really only happens like in a tiny percentage. Like, it'd be great to see the stats on GitHub as to like where the most action is, right? And I'm sure it would actually be relatively predictable, which is just, there's certain things that get a lot of attention. There's a power law for sure, but there's, I think, also a power law of utility. Gina, I apologize if I missed the distinction between like producing open source versus consuming it. So for consuming, I would make the arguments I did earlier and maybe point to some things like how Facebook's security team, which is some of the best in the world, reviewed and signed off on WordPress. And that's one of the things they're allowed to use. And it powers all the FB.com sites. So like, if I'm talking to like a, a retailer, <laughs> like you make, you know, soup, <laughs> what does your security team yeah. know that like Facebook's does not? So the best technologists in the world. So those things can work well. For producing open source, I actually shift a little bit where I'm a little bit of a, a maximalist. And I believe that if you're at the bottom end of that power law, there's actually not as much utility to making things open source either. And much like nonprofits, where you can sometimes get a bunch of different nonprofits trying to solve the same problem, and how much better would it be if they were able to combine forces in an effective way? Much that I think most companies should probably use and contribute to existing open source projects more than create their own. And I think that the utility they'll get from that is far better. And that is also kind of the whole point of open source. I'm a little bit of an anti-monopolist and other things, but open source turns that on its head because because the freedoms that are imbued to every user, that kind of bill of rights attached to the software, as it becomes more popular, it's actually increasing the freedom in the world, where a traditional monopoly or something, as it became more popular, would decrease freedom in the world. So it's one of those things where if we can all work together, kind of like the Wikipedia, we'll create something that's far better than any proprietary alternative ever could. I always feel that plugin architectures, I mean, WordPress is a pure example of plugins. 
open source tools with plugin architectures because it lowers the on-ramp so much to just be like, oh, this is the API for working with this thing. I'm going to build this little plugin that solves my problem, throw it out into the world and see what happens. And and whereas the core platform then re might require a lot more love and attention and require a lot more focus before you can get involved, making plugins tends to be really, really easy. And it seems to be hard to architect things that way because you don't see a lot of things that have good, well-defined plugin architectures, but boy, does it lower the, the cost for jumping in. It was actually a very deliberate design decision we made early on in WordPress, which is instead of creating like a, an object-oriented hierarchical means of extending it, which actually imposes a lot of your ideas for how the architecture should work in the taxonomy of the code and data, we decided to go with a system of filters and actions, which basically allow you to filter and change almost every piece of data uh, at different points in the execution. Or when something else is happening, jump in there and say, I want to do something too. <laughs> so the combination of these, I feel like is actually an incredibly powerful framework that maybe we need a better term for, like, like object-oriented, but I think more software should adopt. The other important thing there for people creating open source projects is what are the incentives of those extensions? So for example, one thing I've seen some other projects kind of fall by the wayside was, was they created a kind of built-in monetization on the platform. Now, what that ended up doing is it discouraged developers from working together. So let's say, Paul, you made a blue widget plugin and I made a blue widget plugin and we're each making maybe five grand a year from that blue widget plugin. There's no incentive for us to collaborate because then we have to figure out how to divide the money and stuff like that. And there's an anti-incentive for that ever to go into core. So if the core software says, right. hey, we need blue widgets in, in core, now I'm I'm fighting for that because I'm making some money from not doing it. And then also users get nickel and dimed a bit where it's, you, you start it and you're like, I have to buy 30 different things from 30 different vendors, or even if it's all combined. But kind of like that, that non-bundled experience, which I think um, each one is like kind of whittling away at the, the great user experience. You mentioned Wikipedia. What other sort of big open projects do you keep an eye on? Like, what do you think is interesting out there in the world? Uh, Chromium is incredible. Chromium. Yeah, and, and you can look at the V8 engine as powering Node. And there's so much that's come out of this. And it's a great example where Google sort of seeded this open source project and it created some, some of the best code that's been written in the past 10 years. It's moved the state of the art for what we can create on the web a ton. Let's not forget they bootstrapped it with Conqueror for, from KDE, right? So it goes even further back. Yeah, both I think both Safari and Chromium branched from KDE, right? Uh, yep. Or sorry, the, the KHTML or whatever it was called. Yeah, KHTML, which was actually a very good browser back in the day. It was just sort of like, oh, this is happening now? And then, um, so anyway, but I mean, but no, no, I mean, that got them there faster. But they started contributing to an existing project. And then later, I think they've re-architected it twice since then, but they, they later oh, rebuilt yeah. it. And now we have this, you know, to go back to Microsoft, Microsoft <laughs> of Internet Explorer fame, that was the thing they got taken to Agent Trust for, is now using Chromium as the basis of Edge. And actually, another controversial view I have is that it's inevitable and probably a good thing for Firefox to adopt Chromium as well. Interesting. Uh, well, let's, I mean, okay, okay wait. So I, I mean, it's, we got yeah, to unpack this because it's funny because when Chrome law, when Chromium was announced at the time, Firefox was a great browser that everyone loved and it's open source. And at the time, I remember thinking, why is Google doing this? You know, why don't we just make Firefox? Like Firefox is it? Had a great extension. All the things at the time, right? This is. I mean, we're talking about ten years ago, probably. I don't. I don't have the date. But let's, let's unpack this about Firefox. Sure. I mean, Firefox is currently declining in every major market except for Germany, I believe. They, I think, are moving slower than they could. And I would estimate they're spending 
100 million a year in developer resources in the engine, right? Because that the web standards are moving forward quickly. You need to work with everyone. And they're in a tough spot because as their usage declines, web developers incentive to sort of test with Firefox. And regardless of all the web standards, you and I know more than anyone, like, it doesn't matter if you built all the web standards, you still need to test in all the browsers. There's just less and less incentive right. for people to test things. Right. And so they get like this gradual wearing away where some websites will just work a little worse or some applications will work a little worse in Firefox and they they bleed users. In contrast to what Microsoft's doing with Edge, what Brave did with Chromium, like I think where we conflate things is we think Google, big and evil, they shouldn't control everything. And like, you know what? Sure. I think what will drive Google to be better though is people being able to not have to compete on parsing arbitrary HTML and rendering that. But actually, what is all the things on top of that? What is the user interface? What is the privacy model? What is the you know payment integration? Brave does really interesting things with cryptocurrency. Like what is what is the innovation that's happening on top of that layer? So if we can just get all of humanity to say like, here's the engine. There's this thing, V8, Chromium, whatever it is, that is like some of the best code and most well-tested code ever written. And that can become like a de facto standard that actually is far more powerful than than sort of English language prose written standards. When you have a code standard, it becomes very real and much more robust. And you know what? If Google as a shepherd of that code starts to do really, truly evil things with it, then it'll fork. Great. But until then, let's get at all these engineers working on that. And what if Mozilla was able to invest that $100 million a year of development and to create innovating the user experience on top of it? Let's not forget, like Mozilla created the search box, which was like the browser monetization. They created tabs. Like so much innovation came from there historically and came from their users. So I think there's a possibility for that again in the future. Damn it, Matt. I don't want to agree with you, but you're not wrong. No, it's true. I mean, look, here's the classic model of the web, right? Is that you're going to have standards encoding either for a while standards got a little aspirational with things like XHTML, but for the most part, you have existing reference implementations that then get standardized by a standards body like the W3C and, and multiple standards is seen as a good thing. And I think that there were a lot of arguments for that, but essentially what we have now is an operating system wrapped with like back and forward buttons. Like we've got WebAssembly, <laughs> we've got, it's just, and also there was Mozilla's attempt to move to Rust for its, uh, its rendering engine, I thought was novel and impressive, but that's just moving to the Apache Foundation. Like they're, they're an, or Linux Foundation, they're not uh, going to continue to invest their own resources at the same level into that, as far as I can tell. And, and maybe I'm wrong there and so on and so forth, but, but I mean, I think that there is a reality here, which is that the competing browser engines are being used to just sort of chase the HTML5 standards and all the things that the web is doing to become more and more like an operating system and have a virtual machine and do more and more dynamic things. And it feels like the benefits are very, very few. The last real space of innovation, I feel, is almost in the developer experience. But even those are starting to become aligned. If I use, I use both when I'm hacking on the weekends and the Chromium experience versus the Firefox experience is roughly analogous. There's some advantages, but they're not differentiating there either. Because I don't think you can. I think we're just, we've all decided we're going to have the DOM and we're going to have JavaScript and ECMAScript and and sort of everybody's agreed. And so, yeah, damn it. I'm going to fight with this in my head a lot more before I I can agree. But think about it. You've made a case. And I say this from a place of like a deep love of Mozilla. 
I think it's one of the most important organizations in the world. If there was a way I could contribute to it or run it or something like that, I would, I would figure out a way to make that work because it's important for the future of humanity. But I think they essentially are getting a lot of the downsides of having a proprietary engine. And if you think about it, proprietary generally contains the seeds of its own demise in its success. That's why if you zoom out over decades, it'll always ends. Because a great example of this is like, we could talk about mobile platforms and, and uh, cloud platforms. AWS, the clear winner, which means all the other people who aren't AWS work together on things like Kubernetes, <laughs> right? And right. They, they all ally because that's the only way you're going to catch up. Uh, iOS, clear winner, way ahead of everyone. Every manufacturer that's not named Apple, Huawei, Xiaomi, Samsung, says, okay, we're going to do Android <laughs> and work on that together. And that will become right. the thing. And ultimately, you know, it's a little complicated because, of course, there's the chips and the batteries and other things built in there. But um, from an operating system point of view, if you were to fast forward 20 years, it's hard for me to imagine the incentives of Android and the incentives of iOS leading to iOS being a better experience. I think Android will be will just pull away from its integrations, its everything. And I say that as a daily iOS user as well. <laughs> just like using Ubuntu at home, it just doesn't matter anymore, right? Like it just, it feels less and less like it matters. I still, like I go in, I go in iOS and I go into Mac OS, you know, like desktop computers, what are those? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, this is, this is nice and tightly integrated and so on. But then I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I've got a 12 core machine that has shiny LED lights, you know, here at home and it, it glows red at night. I think that's cool too. <laughs> and uh, that used to be, I don't think people understand how important that difference was back in the day. And it just feels less and less important. Well, and the beautiful thing that happens is the open source competitor forces the proprietary one to open up. This happened to Microsoft. Right. I expect it to happen to Apple in the 2020s. Like the fact that I can't choose until very recently, like the default calendar app or default mail app on iOS, and it only seems to be shifting now because of antitrust, is just the height of arrogance. Yeah, the government might be helping us along there. And, um, and Europe might help as well. You know, the lightning connector yep. versus USB-C. There's things that Apple does purely for lock-in. And if I were to list the reasons that I stay on iOS being pure product quality, you know, the build, the battery, the camera, versus the things that force me because of lock-in. The iMessage lock-in is an absolute crime. I've now moved on and off of, I, anyway. See, my big dumb idea is it's all, the cloud platforms are going to realize at a certain point that like, ah, oh, you know what, we're not going to get, we've hit our limits on giant enterprise customers and we should actually go for consumers and give them like an operating style experience right there in their browser and have them do things with the software that we offer in the cloud app store. Oh boy. Yeah, that's where I think it's going <laughs> to head. Now, usually I'm completely wrong in all of my predictions. So just, you know, keep that in mind. But We're going to uh, do a show in about, Ten years and check all check all the things that we predicted for the, the next decade, the coming decade. I'd be happy to to be a guest again in ten years. That would be so fun. You know, let's. This is a good a good way to close this out, right? Which is you've been talking about where we're going to be ten years from now with the Fang companies and so on. And you've also told us that like you know you're not really the driver in some ways of WordPress. You steer the ship a little bit, but for the most part, it comes up to you. So it's hard to predict necessarily because WordPress ultimately feels very reactive. But fast forward a little bit, you know, as a CMS platform in the age of apps and and cloud platforms, where does WordPress live? Where does it evolve? So if we look at it from a very high point of view, I think that the thing we'll have to navigate in the 2020s is the desire for mutually incompatible principles like privacy, security, and freedom and autonomy. You know, we talked a lot about sort of fame companies and Apple and Google and stuff, but
But I think that same lock-in that iMessage does, people are getting locked into stuff like that when they choose proprietary CMSs or when they build a proprietary CMS. You know, they're, they're getting an invisible lock-in. They are creating a debt that they will have to pay down somewhere down the road. The thing that we've been doing that I actually think is even bigger than WordPress that's come out of WordPress, maybe to loop back to Gina's question from very earlier, is uh, called Gutenberg. We've created this editor that my hope is that every thing that takes text boxes on the web uses Gutenberg in the future, regardless of whether it's proprietary or open source, whether it's our competitors, whether it's us, we're actually relicensing Gutenberg to the MPL, which is the Mozilla public license, to allow it to be used in proprietary mobile apps. So the idea is that a MailChimp, a WordPress, a Tumblr, a Drupal, a Facebook, all can utilize this. And the idea of Gutenberg is basically saying, you know, when we moved to writing on the web, we kind of brought this mentality of like Microsoft Word and these like monolithic text boxes and pages into this. And really the beauty of the web is creating blocks and elements. So Gutenberg is a block first editor that says like, hey, the beauty of the web is like there's a thousand Lego blocks out there and you can assemble them to create almost any layout you imagine, almost any functionality. It's a great way to integrate new services. So like we just uh, added support for like a Loom block and the Loom folks wrote me like, why did this happen? This is so cool. Like, and it's like, well, you supported open standards like OEmbed. It's very easy to create a block and we like Loom. So even though you're small, like let's add support for that. And so it can create a more interconnected web. And these blocks then become like, a, I think, a fundamental better way to both edit and write content, but also create really rich layouts. And so um, Gutenberg is the thing I'm, I'm probably most excited about. I've spent probably the better part of four years of my life <laughs> kind of getting it to where it is now. And we're just maybe like 10% of the way there. But I'd encourage like you or anyone else building anything that has a text box, look at embedding Gutenberg and it can be skinned and you can hide 99% of the interface. It's really, really exciting. This is what I used to talk about with XML, but everybody's like, I don't want to write angle brackets. I'm going to use JSON. And you know, now we're back to the way it should be, which is elements and blocks that can be restructured and transformed. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's good. That's what I've been looking for. <laughs> yeah, we, we use Gutenberg on postlight.com. And I actually, it, it's Gutenberg is starting to take. We're hearing from clients like, oh, we're running WordPress. We want to move to Gutenberg. Like we, we need some help. And it's like, yeah, I think it's crystallizing the way that people think about content on the web. Uh, more because it's right there in the in the editor. Structured content on this here internet. Read, <laughs> write, structured content. It's been the dream. Heck yeah. It only took twenty thousand years, but here we go. Four years of Mullenweg's life. Lots of life left to go. <laughs> I hope so. Gutenberg is good. Gutenberg is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm neutral on everything, but Gutenberg is a, <laughs> a mass market way to add structured, semantically sensible content into places like newsrooms where people don't have to learn a lot of secret codes. Oh, you just made my 2020. <laughs> that was, that was, coming for you, that was huge. No, it is, that is huge for me. I, you know, I came in here to, to poke fun at, at WordPress and I'm going away thinking how I'm going to graph my world on, on WordPress as a platform. This is the Mullenweg effect, Trapani. <laughs> That's true. It's true. He already got he you. Did. He did. He already he got you. Yeah, you're like, oh, WordPress, la, la, la. And I'm like, WordPress. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> that is actually, interesting. I mean, that's a good, uh, that is a better vision. <laughs> Matt, thank you so much for your time. We, we're so glad that you yes, came on to the show. Yes, this is great. It's been an honor and pleasure. And thank you for everything y'all do. Well, you know, I think that's a that's a bright fellow who's going places, Gina. I think so. I, I think there's some big things coming from <laughs> that. 
All right, so if people want to talk to us, because you know one thing, we actually should say it, we build large platforms on top of WordPress. We do that. That is a thing that we do, and we like it. It is a piece of infrastructure that we often deploy, and we love Gutenberg. We've used it a ton and, and deployed it at all kinds of scales. It is a good tool for us, and it's a good tool for you if you need things built. Gina, if anybody wanted to get in touch and talk about all the things that they could do with Postlight, well, how would they get they in touch? send us a note. Uh, hello at Postlight.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Postlight or find us on all the places, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Just get in touch. Check out our website. It's powered by something. And also check out Postlight.com slash Catalyst, our big white paper about how to manage the reality of shipping software inside of very large organizations. You know it's hard. We know it's hard. And so we wrote down everything we know. All right, we love you. Get in touch. Thanks, everybody. Let's get back to work. <laughs>